When you go to an Asheville City soccer club game, you're not just watching soccer, you're welcomed into what players and fans call the South Slope Blues. The South Slope Blues, they're amazing. This is the coach of the women's team, Brooke Bingham. The atmosphere is what makes Asheville City soccer so great. Longtime player Laura Greb. We have the most dedicated fans. We have our South Slope Blues. They post up in the corner of the field every game. They've got their drums, they've got their smoke, they've got their loud voices. You can hear them for miles. Elite men and women players from throughout North Carolina team up in Asheville for a two-month season against other aspiring pros from all over the Southeast. Home games this season begin May 18th at Greenwood Field on the UNC Asheville campus. For details, tickets, and your first steps into the South Slope Blues, visit Asheville City Soccer Club at AshevilleCitySC.com. One of Asheville's iconic concert venues will vanish in the coming years, not because of poor business, but because of eminent domain. The salvage station on Riverside Drive is on the map of businesses and homes that will be forced to sell and give way to the I-26 connector. This is The Overlook with Matt Pikin, a podcast about the news, arts, issues, and trends of Asheville, North Carolina. Today, I talk with Nathan Moneyham, a division construction engineer based in Asheville for the North Carolina Department of Transportation. Today, we talk eminent domain and how today's DOT works to avoid the practices and policies of yesteryear, which particularly eviscerated communities of color. Communities like Burton Street, like the Hillcrest Apartments, have been given special consideration to the impacts of the project. It's a lot of engagement and community involvement to work through those things to help mitigate those factors. We don't get specific about Salvage Station or any other singular properties. By the way, the owner of Salvage Station hasn't responded to multiple requests for a conversation about this. But Money Ham and I do talk in detail about the I-26 connector and how his office and others within the DOT strive to work with affected communities to pave the road ahead. I began our conversation by asking Nathan Moneyham how the DOT marries up the engineering efficiencies and other technical needs of highway construction with community sensitivities and histories that might conflict with time and cost concerns. I think the way that we do that mainly is communication with folks, especially through that process of public involvement and engaging the community and all the conversations that have been had in years past that led us to here is a balance of folks at DOT that predate me and myself explaining those requirements and needs to folks so that they understand ultimately what the goal is from a traffic operations standpoint. And then them telling us what their concerns and priority are and then working with them through that process to find a balance. To the best of your knowledge, the project dates well before you got on board. Mm -hmm. And it's been 11 years since you've been at DOT and it's still going. And you're just now getting to what you call to the let portion of the project. Why has this taken so long? I, and I'm not saying it shouldn't have, but inform audiences about 
if the DOT knew this a quarter century ago, this was going to happen, what kind of elements come into play that extend the life of a project and keep it going for decades? This is probably a special case, too. I mean, as, as large as this project is, and I would say there's probably two main factors to that. One is the community engagement and the response that was received at some of those early public hearings and the input from the community was so strong to look for solutions to that took some time. Can you talk about specifically things that did come up at these public hearings that have become steering points for the project that are like almost non-negotiable that they came up and that lengthened your process? One is the typical section. That's always been a the point. The typical discussed. section? Just explain that. So when you, when you use the term typical section, that basically just refers to the final cross-section of the road, how many lanes, the width. And from our standpoint, that directly goes into the traffic projection because we design roads to last well past construction. So we're designing it to projected traffic volumes well into the future. So balancing that with a desire from the community to minimize the footprint as much as possible. So that's been probably one of the biggest is to try and minimize the footprint also to to work through the design process to make it as inconspicuous as possible from a standpoint of view shed from those things there's a lot of work and coordination that's went on with the aesthetics committee which was put in place uh, by the city of Asheville. we work with them on things that they want to see in the project all that really goes into kind of the guardrails that we're using uh, to set the final design The other big thing with this project that's really added to the schedule has been funding. And this project is of a larger scale than anything that's ever been let in Western North Carolina and really the state of North Carolina. Can you talk specifically about budgeting? I imagine when this came up 20 plus years ago, costs have gone up exponentially. That had to be factored in, I'm sure, at some point. DOT knows how long projects tend to take that gets into budgeting. Has this gone longer and has the budget, just because of rising costs, gone beyond what was budgeted? And how has that affected this project? I think there's effects on the schedule with that from a standpoint of uh, through the development process of this project, we're doing regular estimates um, and updating those. And it's no question, just like everything else, uh, costs are rising, uh, materials. um, So because of that, though, does that threaten the, any element of the project or is it this is going to happen it's just going to take longer to raise the money or how, what is the impact of these rising costs beyond just pure economics years ago it was schedule impacts which is just comes to we've got to fit that into when we program and we're looking at not just this project but all the other projects and where that falls so that definitely played an effect we're kind of past that point now to the point that we know we have good estimates on what it's going to cost from the past couple of years, and it's accounted for in the budget. So schedule impact is the main one. The other thing is from a standpoint of just as project costs rise, it affects really projects in this area as a whole. So the money we're spending on this project, if it had not been spent here, would have been spent Somewhere else. Can you give us a a figure on how much money this is right now at this point? Currently, uh, all three sections together, about $1.2 billion. Wow. What was originally budgeted? That's hard to say, and I don't know the exact number, but we could do some digging. Would would, it, would this be double, or, or is it hard to, to even put a guesstimate on it? It's hard to put a guess on that just because the history of the project is so long. 
that's yeah. information we can find out there. Oh, when you're talking about public involvement, one of the things that initially brought me here is right away. And I'm wondering how public involvement and public input affected right of way and actual physical placement of where the I-26 connector is going. Can you speak to that at all? Yeah. And like all projects, that public engagement really helps us refine the design. And that's really what you're talking about when you talk about what the final right-of-way ends up being. We talked about the tenets of what came out of public engagement, and part of that was to minimize the footprint as much as possible. So that's been kind of part of the guide to how we kind of work through and get to, to where we are now. So we're looking at trying to use retaining walls, use other methods we have with the slopes and, and ditch lines to just try and tighten everything up to minimize the impact. But yet the connector still needs to serve the purpose of what it was originally meant for. Can you, it does. we haven't even described that yet. Can you as best as you can or succinctly as you can, why is the I 26 connector necessary? I think the biggest name for the connector is comes from its name or the name comes from it. It's to connect 26 for a long time. And really when you come up two forty and have to merge in with really what is local traffic, and you're talking um, both directions on, on yes. 240. And then down from 1923 as well. There's not a connection there. In the interstate, I-26, is disconnected in the area right there across the French Sprawl. So this project connects that. It provides through connection for I-26 traffic to continue on through Asheville and stay on interstate. One of the things that I found fascinating when I talked with Steph- Stephanie monson Dolver at the city, I, I did an episode with her and she talked at length about the multimodal elements that are going to go into this. I can't imagine that was top of mind when the connector first came up about making it a pedestrian friendly, bike friendly route. How has that fundamentally changed this project? It's definitely been a shift from originally, and that's not just with this, but that's Statewide with DOT, our complete streets policy is fairly new. I hadn't heard this term, the complete streets policy. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so our complete streets policy is basically when we look at highway projects, we also look at pedestrian improvements and multimodal aspects to every project we do. We inform that based off all of the transportation plans that are in place from local organizations like the MPO. And when we build a highway project, we also incorporate all the pedestrian improvements. And in the case of the connector, that's pretty substantial. The work that will go on with some new greenways that'll be built on Riverside Drive and also along Patton and pedestrian bridges will be built also. So that's definitely been one of the things that has helped move us forward and steer the design to address not just motorist needs, but pedestrians as well. Has this element of it added to the footprint by having to accommodate, not having to, but wanting to accommodate multimodal transportation, does that add to the footprint of the connector? Not really. When we build a road, typically, if you just think standard sidewalk, a new construction road, there's some level and width of berm, which is that space outside of, say, a curb line or the shoulder. A lot of the pedestrian facilities are already contained inside our footprint. I think it maybe expands a little bit in this case for the connector just because of some of the greenway connections we're going to build. But for the most part, it's not a too much of an increased impact when you start talking about adding pedestrian facilities to the side of the road. Width obviously increases when you talk about bike lanes and those things, but we're early enough in the process that we can accommodate and work through all those things as we finish the design. So eventually, though, 
you need to acquire properties. You need to acquire land that can accommodate this. And through all the hearings and the decades of talk, there are some properties that need to be acquired. Talk about that process, who initiates that and who decides, yes, we need to acquire X properties and this is how we're going to go about doing it. So when we get to that point that we've completed the design to the point that we know what the right-of-way limits are, what the final needs of property are, the initial stage is that we get right-of-way authorization from our Board of Transportation. So that's just the final approval for us to start the process. Once that's done, right-of-way agents will make what we call initial contact to property owners. Right-of-way agents? Is mm-hmm. that what you said? Okay. So we have a right-of-way office, basically, that handles and manages that process here. All of the 14 divisions in North Carolina have one. Ours is here in Asheville. And they help us manage that process. And basically, they'll make initial contact to a property owner. In that initial contact, they'll let them know what the needs of the project are, show them a set of plans, specifically walk through with them what that is. From there, an appraisal stop process would start to, to help determine the value of that property. And that's done in the same way that you would get an appraisal if you were buying a house today, separate from DOT. And that appraisal basically takes, looks at your property uh, in its current condition, in its current value, and then does an after appraisal, basically looking at what it will be like after the road. And that could vary from a small impact into your front yard or your backyard to something that it could be a total take from a standpoint of the whole property being needed for the road. And the difference, uh, tell me if I'm wrong here, but the difference between this and a typical real estate transaction is there's no choice here. This has to happen, right? As far as the state is concerned, it's going to happen. It's just a matter on what terms. Correct. Yeah. And that's the biggest difference. And we, we explain that when we make initial contact with somebody is the process. And there are laws that protect property owners through this process as well. Because once that appraisal comes back and that informs an offer that would be made by NCDOT to a property owner, it includes the value of the property, if it's a total take, or if it's a partial impact, it includes potential damages if the property is use has somehow been limited because of the road. I think one thing that's important for people to understand, especially if they're going through the process, it is a negotiation from that standpoint. I mean, the need is there and, and we have to do what we have to do. But through the appraisal process, we're working towards paying fair market value for property. We're not trying to take anything from anybody. And we work through that process, those appraisals, there's a negotiation that happens. And even past that, if we can't come to a agreement with a property owner through our processes, from that point, it goes to what we call condemnation, which is the legal term. But even at that point, that sounds scary. But what it is that if we can't come to an agreement, it just goes to the court system to determine that value. When that happens, the money that we've offered a property owner goes to the clerk of court and can be made available to them through that process. But that eventually they, that leads to eviction, and then they have to move whether they like it or not. Yeah, and I, that goes back to the laws and things. And I think from that standpoint, we try and be understanding and when we talk to people about the needs and help them understand the needs and also to go through the process with them from an evaluation standpoint that, that they get the full value of their property. I think for a lot of people, and maybe even some business owners, it's not about financial remuneration, remuneration, financial pay. It's about it's the emotion behind it. Yeah, and that's we try and be understanding, and and our the folks that do that are understanding when they make that initial contact. 
One wow. of the things that uh, drew me, and I have not seen the the working right of way map, but uh, I came to understand that the salvage station, the venue, is on the right of way map. And I thought, wow, that's probably the most public business. I could be wrong. You could correct me on this, but the largest and most public business, publicly used element of this. So when I thought of salvage station, I thought some venues, they're buildings, right? They could be recreated. There's no way salvage station is going to be recreated somewhere. Yeah. And that... That's true probably for a lot of properties because people have attachment. And we understand that when we talk to people and go through that process, whether it's a residential or a business, people become attached. And that's something we are mindful of when we go through this process. More after this. It's spring and you want to hike, bike, hit up the farmer's market, but the last thing you want to do on a warm, sunny morning is clean house. That's where Greenland Pro Cleaning comes in. They're eco-friendly, allergy-friendly, and locally owned in Asheville. Listeners of The Overlook get a free upholstery and refrigerator cleaning upgrade with their first booking. Just use the code PODCAST at checkout. Make the most of your time this spring and visit GreenlandProCleaning.com slash overlook imagine you're a classical music composer about to premiere your final symphony behind the scenes your family and a stranger are about to throw everything into disarray welcome to a god in the waters the latest play by the venerable Asheville writer david brendan hopes Look for a lot of laughs, but also a deeper reflection on the making of art and its impact on the people closest to the genius at work. The Sublime Theater presents A God in the Waters, May 9th through 18th at the BB Theater in downtown Asheville. For tickets and details, go to thesublimetheater.org. One of the things that was brought to my attention too, and I, again, I haven't seen the map, but historically, not here necessarily or only here, but a lot of places, communities of color and residential areas of color have historically been taken over by interstate development. I'm wondering how sensitive this project has been, or the people behind this project have been to that and tried to work with our communities of color here to minimize any footprint for the connector in their neighborhoods. That's definitely uh, a consideration. And through this process, again, this took decades. Part of that is that we go through a process of working with the Federal Highways Administration to, from an environmental standpoint. And that includes endangered species and those things. But also, from a cultural standpoint, that's also considered. So with that in mind, communities like Burton Street, like the Hillcrest Apartments, have been given special consideration to the impacts of the project. Burton Street, for example, there's a Burton Street work group that is still meeting and in coordination now to help mitigate the impacts of the project with things like pedestrian improvements to the intersection of Patton and Florida Avenue, potentially a, a mural on what could be a sound wall, depending on if it's approved by the community. All those things are still ongoing and will continue to ongo as we work. And it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning. It's a lot of engagement and community involvement to work through those things to help mitigate those factors. A lot of people may not know, and I don't know, the specialties that might exist within DOT or that DOT contracts with that are outside DOT's 
core expertise, which is engineering. You mentioned the aesthetics. Talk about the different specialties that come into play that either DOT directly employs that have nothing to do with direct road development and engineering and building that go into some of the considerations you're talking about. So we cover a lot of ground at DOT. Um, we've got a lot of different units and a, and a lot of folks working on this project. Just to even start from the beginning, we've got planning units, both in Raleigh and here locally, that work with MPO to determine what projects even move forward. We've got folks in Raleigh that are working on the budget aspect of all that stuff. And then from a technical standpoint, we've got environmental units uh, that help us work through the process of protecting the the physical environment. We've got a whole in- public engagement unit that helps us manage the community involvement piece. And then from a design standpoint, we've got many specialties from there, from roadway to structures to hydro and then construction. I can't even fathom how all these various specialties and people looking out for these various areas come into a harmony with a project as complicated as I-26. Has it come into harmony or is that part of why this project continues to go on and on is that it's just such a complex project that not everybody's going to be happy. I think we've spent a lot of time working with all those units and with the communities to get to the point that we're all moving forward with the project. With that being said, while we are in harmony and it's never a thing that you just, okay, we're all in agreement, let's stamp it, we're done. It's going to be a continued process even while we build it of continued coordination with the city and with the communities. And um, that really never stops. One of the things that would fall under that soft category that I was talking about is character. And maybe you can't pontificate about this, but I I was going to ask you, how do you think this will affect the character of that area? You think of Riverside Drive, River Arch District, Salvage Station has its own feel to it. I don't know another venue that's a reclaimed salvage yard and it's turned into a a major concert venue for this region. A project like this has to change the character of an area. And I'm just curious, how do you mitigate that or even articulate that within DOT and what to preserve? Or do you even go down that road? I think we do. And that's part of that ongoing coordination. I think the Statics Committee has met for almost four years now. And that's been a process of, that's been their main goal. The what committee? Aesthetics, okay. Which is, you know, is is something that the city of Asheville put in place and uh, that we work with to help define, you know, the aesthetics aspects of the project. All of that really points to what you're talking about, the character, the views of Asheville. And there are pieces of that that are incorporated in really all aspects of the project. And again, like we said earlier, it's a balance of what can we do um, in balance with the actual need from congestion and safety and all the other things that get considered in the technical design. Yeah. So what's our timeline here? You said it's about to go out to bid. There's a couple different sections of this project that are about to go to construction. Commonly known really as the A section has been split into two. We'll talk about those first because they're coming first. The first section is I-2513 AAAB. Everyone will know that. No, they won't. (laughs) That section and and the the key pieces of that section are are really, it's I-40. So if you ride through in this area, if you go west on 40 in the left lane, you're familiar with the condition of that concrete uh, and the issues that we have with ASR, which is alkaline silica reaction. But that's a maintenance issue with that, and as well as Smoky Park. So that's the area of the project. 
The work associated with that is to replace all that concrete. It will add a new off-ramp uh, for Smoky Park Highway for the westbound lanes. The other big thing that the AAB section does that lets later this year is it will widen the I-40 eastbound to I-26 eastbound ramp, which is another area of congestion that it'll widen that to two lanes. It'll really tie into what was just completed with the Brevard Road project and improve some things there. So that's the AAB. When we talk about that project, that's the smallest of the three that are fixing to go to construction. It's a bid build. What that means for us is that uh, we have fully designed the project all the way to completion. That's an area that we are actively now buying right away. And we'll let that to contract currently scheduled in November. And then soon after that, once the contract's awarded, you can see a contractor actually start work in that area. So through the winter, oh, in the spring. You'll see some stuff happen in the winter, but like most things in this area from construction industry standpoint, it's weather dependent on how much they'll be able to really do this winter. Okay, so then what happens there? The next section is the other part of what we would call the A section of the connector. So that project specifically runs and is will widen I-240, what we would commonly consider I-240 now. So that's basically from the west side of Brevard Road where it crosses I-240 up to Haywood Road. Okay. And that project will widen existing 240 to six lanes. That includes um, up, upgrading and replacing the structures at the Brevard Road interchange uh, and the Amboy Road interchange. The design actually for that project connects those two interchanges together with frontage roads. Is this where we'll see some of the pedestrian elements? So, um, yeah, there's a greenway included in that between Amboy Road up to Brevard, sidewalk on Brevard Road as well. So all that starts to come into that ACPs. Similar to the first section we talked about, it's bid build. That means we've designed it fully. We're actively buying right away on that section now. So the property owners that are affected are already in communication with our right away staff. We're doing appraisals and working through that process. That project currently is scheduled to let in uh, February of next year. So again, something that you would see probably construction on next summer. So these things are obviously happening concurrently and Mm -hmm. overlapping. And there's a third element to this, right? And the third is the biggest. And that's from the terminology standpoint, it's I-2513BD. And when people say connector, that's what they think of is this project. And it's the largest section of the three that are about to go to construction. And that really carries Haywood Road all the way to Broadway. Can you give us a number of how many properties, how much acreage, how many businesses, residences? Is there any quantifiable number that are affected by this in terms of to any degree right away? Not fully at this time. We know those numbers. I don't know them off the top of my head. We can look them up in a second. But for the A section where we've done bid build, where we've designed it fully and we're purchasing right away now, it's defined. The difference and what kind of makes it somewhat murky for folks and is that the northern section, that biggest piece of the project, is what we call a design-build project. And what that means is we only carry it so far, and when we award it to a contractor, we're not just awarding construction. We're awarding them to finish the design, to buy right away, move utilities, build the project. Why isn't DOT carrying it all the way? We do... Design build has been a process that's been in place for a long time. We've used it for various projects. Brevard Road locally is another one that was done uh, with that delivery method. What's the benefit of that? Because the I mean- benefit is schedule. 
the amount of time that it would take us to go through our normal process and get to construction is a lot longer than if we can do the section design build. It brings a contractor on board. One of the big benefits of that from a schedule standpoint is the contractor can start designing the pieces that they want to work on first, start um, but the, control but, their schedule. Right, but they haven't gone through the work that you guys have in terms of all this talk in the community, the committees, th- these outside firms, ha- are, they're not privy to that, are they? They are, and that's partly really what we spend, what I spend the most time on right now. We've got several units that are involved in that and a lot of staff. But when we talk about preparing the contract, what we're doing is quantifying contractually all the commitments and conversations that have been made over the past several decades. So those contractors that are bidding on the design build project know what those commitments are. And then, like we said before, on top of that contractual process of actually putting all those things from conversation into actual language that goes into the contract that we'll have with the contractor, DOT staff will continue to work through the, with them the whole time. So that the knowledge you're talking about really comes from us in administering that contract. Hmm. Lastly, or maybe not lastly, but the last big thought I've had is, which everybody wants to know is, how is this going to affect traffic during construction? Are there going to be times when 240 is completely shut down and you have to divert people onto area surface roads? Or tell me what people what drivers can expect once things start happening next spring? I think the expectation is we'll work to maintain the existing pattern of number of lanes for 240 moving through this area for all three projects. That's not to say that there won't be closures and detours, but what we really are in the process of now with all three projects, as we finish designs and actually work through construction phasing and how that's going to work is determining What's the best way to approach this? And how can we use the space that we have without increasing temporary impacts and those things to stay inside our footprint, to build temporary lanes, to maintain traffic and those things through this period of construction, which could last as many as seven years, potentially. Wow. You think it could potentially be seven years till we see all this done? I think so. I think completion dates will probably be around the 2030 timeframe for these projects. Speaking of timelines, so I think about what's happening down on, as you go down 26 south toward the airport, from what I understand, that's taken a lot longer than what people initially anticipated, or is that not so? It is. A couple different factors to that. That project specifically crosses Buncombe County into Henderson, so it really is, it's two separate projects back to back, but there's a lot of coordination between the two. I was just wondering, because that's gone on so long, can we expect, you say seven years, that we're going to be looking 10 years from now and it'll still be going on here? It's hard to say, but I think we work through to try and hold schedules best we can. But in this area, weather's an issue. Material availability is an issue that's impacted our current projects. There's lots of different things that, that come into play. Utility conflicts is another thing that is always an issue on projects. It's hard to predict, but it's a whole lot of people working to try and make it happen. If you value the Overlook's place in Asheville's media landscape, please consider joining dozens of others who are supporting the show through my Patreon crowdfunding page. Become a member for as little as $5 a month. Visit patreon.com slash the Overlook podcast. I want to thank my guest today, Nathan Moneyham of the North Carolina Department of Transportation, based in Asheville. 
Our first look newsletter gives you just a handful of daily headlines from around the local media landscape to get you on your morning. We also have a weekly newsletter devoted to all things The Overlook that hits you every Friday. Both are free and available at podavl.com slash newsletter. Our theme music for The Overlook, Maker's Song, comes courtesy of the Asheville band The Resonant Rogues. The Overlook is a production of Podcast Asheville. New episodes come out every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on any social media channel at AVL Overlook. And I'll see you on the next episode of The Overlook with Matt Pikin.